witnesses that were declared before the event. Most of those were declared by me. Uh, but, but I figured out pretty quickly uh, that all my talk was in fact just that. It was just talk. Now, the, 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 the problem was not that I don't know how to play pickleball, because I do, uh, and the problem was that I, I didn't know the rules. Um, but the problem was that, that when Will and I were out on the court, the team that we were facing, Mr. John and Forrest Crumbie, when they got there, I knew immediately that we were in trouble. First off, they got there late, and so when the door opened, it was kind of like the scene in the movie when the, the better team walks in and it's slow motion and there's smoke and you just know that it's going to be bad. It was that for me in my mind. That's how it went. Then, then they, they came with their own equipment. They had their own paddles, which I still think need to be checked because they may have been corked or something. They may have been uh, doctored. Anyway, they had their own equipment. It was very intimidating. And then they got out on the court, and it was clear they had a plan. Like, my plan in pickleball is just hit it over the net. They knew what they were doing. Like, they were playing for real. And so, as you can imagine, it was very quick that they proceeded to defeat Will and I, very convincingly, not because of Will. It was not Will's fault, so don't blame him. Um, but here's the deal. I, I talked a good pickleball game. But John and Forrest, they actually played a good pickleball game. In other words, they didn't just talk the talk, but they also walked the walk, as the saying goes. They backed up with action the truth of who they were as pickleball players. Well, that idea of talking the talk, not just talking the talk, but also walking the walk, is sort of what John brings us to here as he begins chapter 2. Uh, you know, this is a theme, as we saw last week, that runs throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, God did give us this law in order that his Old Testament people might live and follow after him, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, so that they might act as his people in the world. They might be separated from the people of the world. They might walk the walk. He gave them the law. Uh, in the New Testament, we hear Jesus saying these same sorts of things. If anything, he intensifies them because now the law is not just external to us, but now it is written on our hearts by the power of the Spirit, right? And so Christ commands us to bear fruit accordingly. James tells us that faith without works is a dead faith, that it, that it means very little. And then John here, uh, again, as we saw last time, he commands us to, to walk in God's light, which in part means, as it says there in verse 6 of our passage today, uh, to walk in the same way in which Christ walked. Friends, if we are to call ourselves Christians, if we are to call ourselves followers of Christ, then it's clear we can't simply talk about it. We can't simply talk the talk, but we must walk the walk. Now, the, the question is, is why does John go to such great lengths, not only last week, but then again this week, to make this point to us? Why do all of the New Testament writers go so far? Why are they so insistent 
on this point? Why isn't it simply enough to say all the right things and just to trust in saying the right things? After all, don't we believe in grace? Don't we believe in salvation apart from our works? Certainly we believe in both of those things. Don't we believe that our sins now and in the future have been covered by Christ? Certainly we do. Then why does it matter how we live now? What's the point in fighting for holiness, in fighting for obedience? Well, here, uh, in these verses, I want to suggest to you that John gives us three major reasons why obedience is not only required, but why we should delight in walking the walk that the Lord has laid before us. So, with that in mind, let's, let's look at it together. The first thing I want you to notice in this passage, I want you to notice the goal. The goal. You know, we, we live in a world uh, where due to really the overwhelming nature of most of our schedules, uh, people seem to be constantly sort of analyzing uh, what is important. They, they analyze their goals. They analyze the, the purpose of the various things in their lives, and rightly so. You know, if we want to do things well, and if we want to do things with any sort of efficiency, then we need to know their purpose. Why am I doing this? We need to know what the end game is. My my boys, they used to play a game called Minecraft. And I don't know if y'all know about this game, but it's a game basically where you just go around and build stuff. And they always would want me to play it. And I was like, well, tell me the point of this game. And they never could tell me the point of the game. Wes is trying to tell me the point right now, but there was no point. There was no end in sight. It was just build stuff and build stuff and build stuff. No end. Because I couldn't play it. So we need to know the end. Let me ask you, what's the end game of the Christian life? We could think in terms of forgiveness or of hope or of eternity. And certainly all of those things are valid. All of those things are true. But notice here in verse 1, why is it that John is writing these things to these little children, as he calls them? So that they may not sin. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll recall that this is sort of where we ended our study of verses 5 through 10. And so I don't want to spend too much time here retracing our steps But remember, we said then that John's purpose to promote personal holiness in these, his readers, is the same as Peter's when in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15 and 16, he quotes from Leviticus and says, you must be holy as God is holy. It's the same thing that that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says that you have been chosen in order that you might be holy. Not because you were holy, but in order that you might be holy. Friends, the goal of the Christian life, the end game through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, is holiness. It is sanctification. It is to walk as Jesus walked. Now look, I recognize that this is overwhelming when we hold it up against the reality of what our lives actually look like. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. We're going to get to that point. But I also want you to consider that in those commands, in those realities to be holy, there is great hope in what the Scripture says to us. Friends, if you have ever really 
struggled with sin. If you've ever really fought the battle uh, to try to mortify sin within you, then you know how difficult it is. You know how disheartening that struggle can be. You know, whether it's an abiding sin, one that we wrestle with throughout our lives over and over and over again, or whether it's a new one that that seems to, to come out of nowhere. It too often feels like we are fighting an uphill battle, right? That, that this struggle with sin will never end. David feels something of this in Psalm 51, right? He says, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. I, I was brought forth in iniquity. He feels the weight of his sin. Paul does the same thing in Romans 7 when he's struggling with what he wants to do, but what he actually does. And the, the, the battle he sees going on in his members. And you remember at the end of that, he finally says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He desperately, we desperately want to be done with sin. But we wonder how or if that end will ever come. Friends, the, the hope of verse 1, the hope of the verses that we have quoted from First Peter and from Ephesians and, and these quotes that we could go back through Scripture over and over again and find so many of them, the hope that is there, the hope of knowing the purpose of the Christian life is that whose purpose is it? Who has set the purpose that his people will be holy? Not me and not you. It is the same one who made us. It is God's purpose. He has said, you will be holy. He has said, I have saved you in order that you might be holy. What do we know about God's purposes? They do not fail. They, they do not end. He will do what he has said that he will do. And that doesn't mean that we're going to magically wake up one day in this life and have the means in and of ourselves to mortify sin. We know that's not true. But it is clear, and thankfully it is true, that though we are active in this process, ultimately who are we depending on to fight this battle of death, this, this battle of sin in us? It's Christ, right? Who is it that has set holiness as the goal of the Christian life? It is our Savior. And so, friends, my, my point to you here is, is take heart. Don't, don't stop fighting sin. Don't let sin or Satan overwhelm you. A day is coming, and it's coming soon, where what is true of you in Christ, you are holy even now in the Savior. But a day is coming where that will be true in your members, where you will be holy. Not because you do it, but because the Lord of all creation has declared it. You will walk the walk, because friends, that's the end game. That's the purpose, at least in part, of the Christian life. Secondly, in this passage, I want you to notice the motivation. The motivation. Now, we said that, that John's almost continual calls to holiness, um, they can be overwhelming, uh, particularly when we look at our lives and we see the reality, even as Christians, the reality of the sin that persists there. 
You know, all, all that John says here, it, it sounds good in theory, um, but we have to wonder two things. One, is John being realistic here when he says that, that he is writing that we may not sin? And then secondly, if holiness is the end game, uh, an end game that won't be complete until we get to heaven, what's the, what's the motivation to do the hard work, the hard work of fighting sin now? Uh, if we know that God's doing it and that he's going to do it, th- then what is our motivation to take part in that mortification? Well, first, notice John is realistic. He's realistic in setting the goal before us, and then he's also realistic in his assessment of human nature. Again, verse 1 there. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin. Uh, he, he, John knows the truth. John, John's not wearing uh, rose-colored glasses here. You know, he's not fooling anybody. He knows we will need help. He, he knows that we will sin. He knows that we will need motivation to carry on. And so notice what he does next. He says, if anyone does sin, what does he do? He holds up to us the Savior, right? He holds up to us the hope of who it is that we are resting in. And notice how he describes this Savior. First, he calls him our advocate. Um, one commentator says that, that Jesus is the, the best and cheapest defense lawyer that any of us will ever have. And he's right. Uh, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and from that place, what does he do? He takes up the cause of all those who belong to him. According to, to Romans 8.34, he intercedes, he pleads on our behalf. When Satan comes to accuse us, and friends, he certainly will. He's the great accuser. Every time we sin against the Holy One, every time our sins come before the Father, Christ is there saying, I shed my blood on behalf of this one. He or she is mine. Therefore, he or she is in me, and he or she is righteous, just as Jesus, as John says there, that Jesus Christ is the righteous. Son of God, He is our mediator, the only one, Paul says. And He is our great high priest, according to that verse on top of your bulletin there from Hebrews 4. Same in Hebrews 8, uh, chapter 8 and verse 1. He is the one who represents us in the Holy of Holies, in the, the very throne room, the courtroom of God. Jesus represents, He is your advocate. He is interceding on your behalf. Friends, what a a glorious reality uh, this is. Uh, Douglas O'Donnell, one commentator on 1 John, he says, it is a tremendous thought to know that Jesus never stopped loving us or lost interest in our situation. That when on the cross he cried, it is finished. He was not yet finished with us. He will never be finished interceding for our sins. What comfort What joy. Jesus is our advocate. Not only is he our advocate, but notice secondly here, he is also our propitiation. Now that's a a big theological word that we don't use very often anymore. We certainly don't use it in normal conversation. 
But it's easy enough to understand. Propitiation describes the action of satisfying the wrath of God. So, so that th- that wrath uh, might be turned to favor. Where there may be favor where there was once enmity. And it is this propitiation. It is the precursor. It is the prerequisite for Christ's intercession on our behalf. In other words, to put it more simply, uh, to become our advocate, Christ had to first be the spotless lamb who took on the sins of his people, the sins that he even now intercedes for and who bore the punishment those sins deserved. On the cross, um, Jesus, he drank the, the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it to the very last drop. So that for all of those who belong to him, if you belong to him today, people throughout time, people throughout space, that's what he means there when he says, not only for us, but for the sins of the whole world. He's covering every person who will ever come and believe in Christ, right? All of Christ's people throughout space and time, Jesus drank the cup to the end so that now there is no condemnation. God's wrath has been satisfied. It's been propitiated. And sin has been expiated, which means it's been covered. It's been dealt with once and for all. Friends, we have been saved by the precious blood of the Lamb, and we are kept through His interceding work on our behalf. Now, the question is, is what does any of that have to do with walking the walk? It's, it's easy to see, at least I pray that it's easy to see, how, how all of this should give us hope, right? It should give us great hope in Christ, that He is our advocate, great hope that He has died for us. But how does this motivate us to obedience? Well, I want you to think about a, a son with his father. You know, if, if that father is a good father, and look, I, I recognize that that's not always the case, but if the father is a good father, then how is that son going to act with his father? What does is, what is a son, especially a small son, what does he do with his father? He acts like him, right? He imitates him in almost every way. Now, why does he do that? It's because that father takes care of him. That, that father provides for him. He sacrifices for that son. He cares for him like almost no one else can. He, he loves him. And it is obvious for that son to see. And so, of course, that little boy, he, he puts on his, son, his dad's shoes. Of course, he, he wants to be what his dad is. He wants to walk like him. He wants to talk like him. He wants to imitate him in almost every way. Because honestly, who's better? Who's stronger? Who's going to love that boy like his father? The answer is nobody. Nobody, at least in his mind, is going to love me like this guy. This this dad loves me. And so he he it motivates good behavior. It motivates imitation. Well, friends, if that's true for earthly fathers, if that's true for dads here that, that we experience, how much more true is it? for the, the, the one who has died for us, 
How much more true is it for Christ, who is our advocate, who is our sacrificial lamb? Let me ask you, who has loved you like He has loved you? Who has given up more for you than He has given up? Who is better? Who is stronger? Who is wiser than this lamb, than this advocate? The answer is nobody. We sing a song in children's choir that says, Can't nobody... Love me like Jesus. And that's right. That's absolutely true. And friends, if he loves you that way, then that love should motivate our good behavior. It should motivate our imitation, holiness, pursuing righteousness. That's not a burden we as Christians have to bear. Though I know it often feels like a burden that we bear to our sinful hearts. Righteousness and holiness and walking after Christ, it is our privilege. It is our expression of thankfulness and love and our acknowledgement of who He is, that He knows best, that He is this, this great and strong and mighty Savior who has loved us so well. Again, I say to you, if you're struggling with sin today, if you're struggling with holiness, the place to begin, friends, is not with a commitment from yourselves to do better. The the place to begin is not to try to dig deeper to overcome what is holding you back. That might work for a day, it might work for a week, it might even work for a month or a year, but eventually our sinful hearts are going to let us down. Sin is too resilient, and we love it too much. We give into it too easily. Instead, the place to begin is with a look at the Savior. Actually, the place to begin is with a fixed stare upon the Savior. Because it's only as we fall more in love with Him. It's only as we grow to more and more appreciate the reality of what He has done for us, that we are going to become more holy, that we are going to walk after Him. The the love of our heart is going to have to change from sin to the Savior. And the only way that happens is when we fix our eyes on what He has done for us, fix our eyes on Him with the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So we have the goal, holy living. We have the motivation, the advocate, the sacrificial lamb. And then thirdly and finally and quickly, I want you to notice here the proof. The proof. Remember, John, at least in part, is writing to these people to give them assurance. To help them know that they are resting in Christ. And one of the ways that we know, as Ben has already reminded us, and as verse 3 says, one of the ways that we can know for a fact that we belong to Jesus is if we keep His commandments. Obedience is evidence. It is proof of a changed heart. Now again, friends, we have to acknowledge that this is not perfect obedience And we have to acknowledge that there are many, many ups and there are downs in the Christian life. In other words, sometimes obedience is a struggle. And that's true for all of us. 
But it doesn't change the fact that the hallmark of faith, the true test of its genuineness, is obedience. Why? Why is that true? Well, if you remember Hebrews chapter 11 and in verse 6, uh, the author there says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. In other words, apart from faith, true obedience is not even an option for us. And so what that means is that if, the, if there is any obedience in your life today, even if it is just the obedience to come and to fall down before him and to repent, if there is any obedience in your life today, then friends, again, take heart. The love of God, John says, is being perfected in that person as he walks with Christ and as Christ works in him. Obedience is proof. It is assurance of Christ's salvation. Jesus says as much. John says as much. The whole of the New Testament says the same. Obedience is how we know. Keeping his commandments is how we know that we are walking with Christ. That we are truly his. Well, we're going to have to end there. But we have seen here three reasons why we are motivated, why we should walk the walk. One, it's the goal of the Christian life. Two, we've seen the motivation that leads us to to walk that way. And then third, we've seen that it is the proof, the proof of the Christian life. Friends, I'll simply end this morning uh, by giving you the the warning of verse 4. And I realize this is not a very great way to end a sermon that I hope has been encouraging to you, but uh, we, can't, we can't avoid verse 4, right? John says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The, the simple fact is, is it's easy to talk a good game. It's easy to talk a good game when it comes to Christianity. It's easy to say all the right things. But talk, as they say, is cheap. And so are you today carrying your cross? Are you today striving for holiness? Are you walking the walk as one who has been saved through the shed blood of the precious, spotless Lamb of God? May he, may he continue to transform his people to the end that he might receive all glory, honor, and praise as we pray together. Father God, uh, that is our prayer, uh, that whether it is through our words or whether it's through our lives, uh, through our actions, that that you would receive all glory and and honor. Uh, And Lord, we recognize uh, our sin is ever before us. And we recognize the, the, the struggle that is constantly within us. Uh, this battle that, that wages. Uh, and Father, we are also honest enough with ourselves to admit that we can't fight it on our own. Uh, Lord, if we are, are left up to our own devices, we will lose. And so we ask that you would be at work in us by your Spirit. We're so thankful that, that we have that assurance, that your Spirit is in our hearts and that he is sanctifying us even if it feels like it is a slow process an uphill process one step forward and three steps back but it doesn't change the fact that for all those who are resting in Christ you are making us more like our Savior and one day Lord we we will be holy as he is holy one day we will see you face to face 
And so, Lord, we look forward to that day. We look forward to that day where sin will be no more. And until then, we ask that you would uh, just strengthen us uh, and that you would make us more like Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen.